Shalom Aleichem and welcome back to Sefer Maccabim. Last time we learned about Alexander Ballas and his victory over Demetrius. How Demetrius' son, also called Demetrius, came from Crete a few years later to retake the kingdom. How Yonatan also won a battle against Demetrius II's general, Apollonius. Now we're going to see what happens when Egypt, who at this time are still a considerable world power, switches sides in the battle between Alexander and Demetrius. You'll remember from the previous chapter that Ptolemy entered into a marriage alliance with Alexander. Chapter 11 begins with Ptolemy, king of Egypt, deciding he doesn't want to play nice anymore and would much rather claim the Syrian Greek empire to add to his own Egyptian kingdom. He decides to do this, but in a sneaky way. He gathers a great army and leads them, part by ship, part by land, along the coast up towards Antioch and towards Seleucid territory. He acts like he's just marching his army through peacefully, and all the Seleucid cities he passes through receive him happily. Because after all, Ptolemy is still Alexander's father-in-law, and Alexander, who is still emperor, has no idea that Ptolemy has defected and has commanded that his father-in-law be greeted warmly wherever he goes. This is exactly what Ptolemy was hoping for. And as he journeys up the coast, he leaves a garrison of soldiers in every city he passes through. This way, Ptolemy is able to claim a large number of Seleucid cities without even a battle. As expected, Ptolemy's journey brings him near Judea, and as he approaches the country, some of the Hellenists approach him and insist on showing Ptolemy the wreckage of the Dagon Temple at Ashdod, and the bodies of the dead soldiers all piled up. They loudly blame Yonatan for causing all this damage, hoping to incite Ptolemy against Yonatan, but the king says nothing. He has no intention of declaring war on Judea. Possibly he thinks he could never win. Possibly his only desire is to unseat Alexander but he wants Egypt to remain at peace with Judea. Sure enough, Yonatan comes from Yerushalayim to greet him. They salute each other in mutual respect, and Ptolemy gives Yonatan a variety of expensive presents. Yonatan accompanies the king as far north as the Litron River, and then returns to Yerushalayim. So Ptolemy eventually arrives in Acre, having claimed many coastal cities for himself. But here, he is in for a big shock, as he is almost assassinated by a friend of Alexander named Ammonius, who is later killed for this. Ptolemy writes to Alexander, and Ptolemy is still pretending to be Alexander's ally, saying, I demand you punish Ammonius because he nearly took my life. Alexander doesn't reply to the letter. And Ptolemy deduces from this that Alexander himself had ordered this attempt on Ptolemy's life. And he starts to hate his son-in-law. And he is sorry he ever made Alexander Ballas his ally or gave him his daughter in marriage. So Ptolemy continues his journey north and arrives in Antioch, Whereupon he writes to Demetrius II, let us make an alliance together, and I'll take my daughter away from Alexander and give her to you as a wife instead. Demetrius is very pleased, and Ptolemy's daughter Cleopatra is taken away from Alexander and given to him as a wife instead. Now the people of Antioch hate Alexander, as they had suffered greatly under his rule, but they still bear considerable animosity towards Demetrius, on account of his father being a lousy ruler towards them, as we mentioned in the last chapter. So when Ptolemy arrives in Antioch, the people not only welcome him with open arms, but crown him as their king right there. Now Ptolemy here realises he's in a bit of a quandary. On the one hand, he would really like to take the Seleucid throne and rule over both Egypt and the Syrian Greek Empire. After all, that's why he came against Alexander in the first place. On the other hand, he realises that Rome, who by this time are becoming the dominant world superpower, would consider a united Egyptian Seleucid Empire ruled by Ptolemy too much of a threat to Rome's military superiority, and they would quickly step in to demand its dissolution. So, wishing to avoid the wrath of the Romans, 
Ptolemy meets with the people at Antioch and asks them to accept Demetrius as their ruler. He assures them that he will personally make sure Demetrius treats them well, and that it's enough for him to rule over just Egypt. This suffices to convince the people of Antioch to accept Demetrius, son of Demetrius, as their next emperor. Now, all this time, Alexander was away in Cilicia, a region in what today is southern Turkey, because the inhabitants of Antioch had revolted against him and driven him out of the capital. When Alexander his Ptolemy has entered Antioch and persuaded the people to accept Demetrius as their ruler, he is inflamed. He still has a considerable number of followers, not to mention a supply of those infamous Greek war elephants, and he gathers a huge army and leads them south from Cilicia to Antioch, where he burns some of the surrounding countryside and pillages it. But Ptolemy gathers his own army and beats Alexander in battle, forcing the latter to flee into Arabia. However, Ptolemy himself does not escape unscathed. Josephus tells us how during the battle, Ptolemy's horse heard the sound of a war elephant and grew scared, casting Ptolemy off its back. When the enemy soldiers see Ptolemy cast to the ground like that, they fall upon him and inflict so many head wounds upon him that by the time his guards catch up with him, the Egyptian king is almost dead. For four days, he lies in bed unable to speak or to comprehend his surroundings, dead to the world for all intents and purposes. On the fifth day, he recovers enough to regain his senses and is met with a pleasing sight. After Alexander fled into Arabia following his defeat, an Arab named Zabdiel beheaded him and sent the head as a gift to Ptolemy. So Ptolemy has some satisfaction and seeing his friend's turned enemy dead before his eyes, but shortly after, his head wounds proved too much and three days later, he too departs this world. So just like that, two major players are gone from the field, leaving Demetrius as the sole Seleucid ruler. Now, this chapter hasn't really gotten around to the Jews yet, but it does so now. Around this time, as Demetrius emerges as Seleucid emperor, Yonatan is gathering an army of Jews to finally storm the Acre and take it down, which is still acting as the major Seleucid Hellenist stronghold in the heart of Yerushalayim. Yonatan has also made many large war engines, and the Jews besieged the Acre and are determined to demolish it once and for all. Some of the Hellenists elsewhere in Judea travel to Antioch and inform Demetrius that Yonatan is besieging the Acre. Understandably, Demetrius is very angry when he hears this, because the Acre most likely still housed a great number of Greek mercenaries. So Demetrius journeys south to Acre and sends a message to Yonatan, demanding two things. One, that he should call off his siege of the Acre, and two, to hurry and meet him in Acre without delay. Yonatan does not agree to call off the siege, but he does agree to come and meet Demetrius. He selects several of the elders and the Kohanim, gathers silver, gold, and presents to give the king as a gift, and they hurry to Acre to meet him. Despite the bad words the Hellenists had spoken to the king about Yonatan, when he and his entourage arrive at Acre with a handsome gift for Demetrius, the Seleucid king is overjoyed and chooses Yonatan to be one of his close friends, also granting him the authority to serve his Kohen Gadol. Yonatan requests that Demetrius free Judea from the heavy taxes currently levied upon them by the Seleucids, and he promises Demetrius 300 talents of silver in exchange. Demetrius consents and sends Yonatan a copy of a letter confirming Judea's release from paying tribute, which he instructs Yonatan to display in a prominent place on the walls of Yerushalayim. Now let me here include another point to learn from Rabbi Hodel Cohen. Note that by this stage of the revolt, the Maccabean faction is not functioning in the same way as it did at the very start, after the uprising in Modian. The Jews are still fighting for the same goal, namely political independence from Seleucid Greece. But in the early days under Yehuda HaMaccabee, when they lived in the mountains, the Maccabees were very much guerrilla fighters. Now they function less as a band of warriors and more as a political party with a military wing. 
They still maintain the capacity to wage war against their enemies, but it's no longer the only cause of action. The Maccabees possess considerable power and are recognized as a force to contend with, meaning the option is open for Yonatan to use diplomatic means to achieve his goal of political independence for Judea. Independence has not yet been achieved for Judea because they are still subject to certain Seleucid taxes, and after all, bands of foreign soldiers are still installed up and down the country. This is a common pattern in revolutionary wars. At first, the revolutionaries are small in number and power and are limited to making surprise attacks on the enemy. But as the revolution progresses and they gain power and prestige, other means open up to them of pursuing their goal. In this chapter, we see Yonatan using both means. He communicates with Demetrius by letter in an attempt at diplomacy, and he also takes his army and goes to war against Demetrius, as we shall see. After sending Yonatan the letter, Demetrius realizes he doesn't actually have anyone left to fight right now. The empire is peaceful. There's no more war to make. So, he makes the decision to dismiss most of his soldiers and sends them home without pay. And even the few he holds on to only receive a reduced salary. But this decision to save money proves to be a bad one, because the soldiers who relied on their fighting in the army for their income are now out of a job and become very resentful towards Demetrius. Indeed, Josephus informs us how other professional armies at the time used to pay their soldiers full wages even in peacetime, in order that if an occasion arose to fight again, the soldiers would be happy and willing to immediately step up and do so. So this decision to not pay his soldiers is going to prove very costly indeed for Demetrius. It's not just the army, the people of Antioch hate him too, because he, just like his father Demetrius I, is apparently treating the local populace very badly. So the people of Antioch are itching for the chance to unseat Demetrius. That chance comes when Yonatan sends ambassadors to Demetrius, bearing gifts and the following message. Please remove your mercenaries from the Acre and from the various garrisons across Judea, because Judea can't be fully independent while the enemy is still keeping soldiers there against the people's will. Demetrius replies, not only will I do this for you, but much more, once I finish fighting the war I'm currently engaged in against some of my subjects. Just one thing, my army's deserted me and I really need some more soldiers. Do you think you could send me some reinforcements? So Demetrius is responding to Yonatan's request by submitting a request of his own because he needs fighters and he knows the Jews make good fighters. Yonatan accedes to Demetrius's request and sends him 3,000 toughened Judean soldiers. True to form, Yonatan is again using diplomacy. He's not on Demetrius's side. He certainly has no obligation to send him soldiers. He's only interested in pursuing the goal of Judean independence from Seleucid rule. However, at this stage, he judges that assisting Demetrius is the best course of action towards that goal. Considering Demetrius did promise to remove his mercenaries from Judea, and he promised even more if Yonatan would send him soldiers. In any case, Demetrius knows his army has turned on him and he is very grateful to Yonatan for the 3,000 soldiers, but the population of Antioch are not. Because when they see the reinforcements arriving, they think, the emperor's building up his army again. Unless we stop him, he'll come down hard on us all. So the entire population of Antioch, 120,000 of them, grab their weapons and storm towards the palace with the goal of assassinating Demetrius. They storm towards the palace and block all the exits. Demetrius orders the Jewish soldiers and all the mercenaries who are still loyal to him to fight the oncoming crowd. But even all these professional soldiers are no match for the tens of thousands of people coming up from Antioch. At this point, the Jews decide to take matters into their own hands. You may remember how back in chapter 3, we mentioned how the bow and arrow was a signature Judean weapon. 
Well, the Jewish soldiers realize that right now they can make very good use of their archery skills. They climb up onto the top of the palace with their bows and arrows, and they rain down their cedar arrows upon the vast mob of Antiochians outside. Being out of reach from them, they suffer no casualties, but they inflict many wounds on the mob outside. Eventually, they drive the mob back from the houses directly outside the palace, at which point some of the Jews race down and set those houses on fire. Josephus tells us that the houses in Antioch back then were made of wood and positioned very closely together. So, of course, the fire spreads like nobody's business and goes on to burn down the entire city. While the people of Antioch see their city in flames and that they cannot reach the king or stop the fire, they realize they have to flee. So they do just that, and the Jewish archers jump from rooftop to rooftop, chasing the fleeing crowds and shooting more and more arrows at them. When Demetrius realizes the crowd are now busier with saving their wives and children than with killing him, he sees the tide of the battle has turned, and he and his mercenaries jump forward and slay a great many surviving Antiochians in the narrow alleyways throughout the city, until the people of Antioch throw down their weapons and plead, Grant us peace, and let the Jews not assault us any longer. So the battle ends with Demetrius's life spared. Of the 120,000 Antiochians who stormed the palace, the Jews and Demetrius's other soldiers slew around 100,000. That's a huge number. It's a clear victory for Demetrius. But remember how Demetrius promised Jonathan that after the battle he would withdraw all his mercenaries from Judea? Well, that doesn't happen. In fact, Demetrius goes back on his words and acts like a real jerk towards Jonathan, threatening to go to war against him unless he pays him the tribute owed him by Judea, the very same tribute which he so generously freed him from in that ridiculous letter back in chapter 10. And Demetrius would have followed through on this too, if not for a new development, which does rather change the course of events. Although Alexander Ballas has by now been slain by an Arab, he does have a surviving son named Antiochus, who is being brought up by another Arab man named Amalkiel. One member of Alexander's old forces, named Tryphon, who seemingly is still loyal to Alexander, sees how all the dismissed soldiers are grumbling against Demetrius, and Tryphon realises this could be the perfect opportunity to overthrow the emperor. So Tryphon goes to Amalkiel, the Arab who is raising Antiochus, and he requests that he give the young Antiochus over to him so that he might make him the emperor instead of Demetrius, telling him how Demetrius's soldiers are no longer loyal to him and that this is the chance they've been waiting for to overthrow the king. At first Amalkiel is disbelieving, but after much persuasion on Tryphon's part, he accedes and hands over the young Antiochus to Tryphon. Tryphon escorts Antiochus back to Antioch, and crowns him as king there. And now Demetrius really pays for not paying his soldiers, because when they hear the son of their hated master's enemy has been crowned as king, they all flock to pledge allegiance to him. And with these new forces, Tryphon declares war against Demetrius and wins, taking control of Antioch and also of Demetrius's herd of war elephants. Demetrius retreats northward to Cilicia, the same place where Alexander was before. Now the young Antiochus immediately sends ambassadors to Jonathan to declare his desire for friendship between the two of them. Not only does Antiochus officially recognize Jonathan as the going Gadot, but sends him numerous gifts, including a golden button, which was the official insignia worn by the friends of the emperor. Jonathan is overjoyed and sends ambassadors back to Antiochus and Tryphon, saying, I'd be more than happy to join with you to fight against Demetrius. He is an ungrateful so-and-so. When his people revolted against him, I sent him 3,000 soldiers, and if not for them, his people would have killed him. But the minute the threat passed, he's acting like I'm his worst enemy. So Antiochus grants Jonathan the right to raise an army from his own Syrian Greek troops and to go to fight Demetrius. The soldiers, as we've mentioned, have hated Demetrius ever since he dismissed him from the army without pay. 
and they are delighted to join up with Yonatan. So incredibly, we have the leader of the Jewish forces heading a Seleucid army. Now before he actually goes to fight Demetrius, Yonatan circulates among the cities of the coastal plain, asking them to join with him and provide soldiers to join the fight against Demetrius, which most of them do so happily. The inhabitants of Ashkelon even bring him presents. The only trouble Yonatan has is when he arrives at Gaza, for even though the populace is not loyal to Demetrius, they are not ready to back Antiochus either, and they shut Yonatan out of the city, intending to remain forcefully neutral. Annoyed, Yonatan commands his troops to besiege the city, and burns and spoils the open land around it. When the inhabitants of Gaza see they are only bringing suffering upon themselves, they capitulate and welcome Yonatan into the city. Yonatan graciously makes peace with them, although he does take the sons of the city chiefs as hostages to be kept in Yerushalayim. As it turns out, Yonatan has built up his army just in time, because shortly after, he hears news that Demetrius is marching against him with an army, and he's currently reached the Galil. So Yonatan leaves Shimon, his brother, in Judea to watch over matters, while he marches north to deal with Demetrius. Shimon raises as large an army of Jews from the surrounding areas as he can, and he besieges Betzur, the strongest fortification in Judea, which still has a garrison of mercenaries there, and of which Shimon is determined to regain control. He brings huge war engines to the outskirts of the city and keeps up the siege of Betzur for many days until the mercenaries inside become afraid that if Shimon breaks his way in by force, he'll surely startle them all. So they send a message to Shimon saying that if he promises to let them go unharmed, they'll leave the city without a fight. Shimon acquiesces and the mercenaries leave Betzur and head north to join Demetrius's army and Shimon fills the city with soldiers of his own. Meanwhile, Yonatan has led his army north and camped by the shores of the Canaries, after which they marched to the nearby plain of Chatzor. Now, anyone familiar with the, with the topography of northern Israel knows that the land directly northwest of the Canaries is very low and flat, but nearby there are some very tall mountains at the eastern edge of the Galil. Think of the difference between Tzfat and Severia, that's a good way to think about it. And unknown to Yonatan, Demetrius has caught wind of the fact that he was coming, and he's hidden part of his forces in the mountains. When Yonatan arrives at the low plain of Chatzor, he finds Demetrius' army there and comes to wage war against them. But before he can get his troops ready for battle, the other part of Demetrius' army appears from the other direction, descending from the mountains to trap them in a perfect ambush. Fearing they will be caught between the ensuing armies from the mountain and the plain, the majority of Yonatan's forces, quite simply, flee. Only around 50 of his soldiers, as well as two army captains, who incidentally are named Matityahu and Yehuda, steer with Yonatan. When Yonatan sees that his forces are deserting him, he tears his clothes and places earth on his head as a sign of mourning, and he prays to Hashem that they should be granted victory. Then he gathers his 50 soldiers and they charge straight at Demetrius' forces. The enemy soldiers, who are confident of success in the wake of their ambush and the Jews' flight, stop short. They are confused by Yonatan's unexpected onslaught and very afraid, and they begin to run away. When the fleeing Jews look over their soldiers and see the enemy fleeing from before Yonatan, they are encouraged and turn back to rejoin the fight. Around 3,000 of Demetrius' forces are killed, and the rest are forced to flee back to their base camp in Kedesh, a town north of the Kinneret. So we see that Yonatan's courage and unwavering faith in Hashem brought his people yet another miraculous victory. That brings us to the end of chapter 11, and we've seen a lot happen here. Ptolemy decides he no longer wants to work with Alexander and would rather rule himself. A battle between the two of them takes place, ultimately taking them both out, leaving Demetrius II as ruler. Demetrius dismisses most of his army. His people storm his palace in Antioch, but are driven away by the Jewish archers shooting from the rooftops. 
Trifon crowns Antiochus, son of Alexander, as emperor, who reaches out to make friendship with Yonatan. And with Antiochus' blessing, Yonatan journeys north to fight Demetrius' forces in the eastern Galil, where the Jews have delivered a miraculous victory. I think the underlying theme of this chapter is that Yonatan is continuing to use whatever means he sees necessary, whether peaceful or violent, to advance his goal of Judean independence. Next time, in chapter 12, we'll get another look at our good old friends, the Romans. Until then, peace out.